Just stop. Shush. <laughs> get out of it. I'm bringing a, a new persona to 2021. We're going to f*** it up. Don't get in my way. Wow. <laughs> no. Hi, and welcome to Bad Decisions. The podcast that helps us understand why we choose what we choose. Why we think what we think. And how to exploit this stuff for fun and commercial gain. Always ethically. Always. Always. I'm Dr. Mel Weinberg. I'm a performance psychologist. And I'm Dan Monheit, co-founder of Hard Hat. And here is Cops with the music. Wow, big year, 2021. Uh, we made it. Welcome. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you. Nobody's actually welcomed me to the new year, so that's that's very kind of you. Uh, that's my official responsibility. I've been working through my list. I only just got to double you. I, sorry, it's <laughs> taken me to February, but we are here now. Well, big year, a lot of really interesting uh, things from a behavioral perspective, hey? Such as? Such as everything. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a big year. You're talking COVID? Yeah, how about you give me a list of things that didn't change, and then I'll give you a list of things that did, all right? Let's go straight into the big things that... <laughs> My hairstyle didn't change. I'm holding strong. One big category of change we can look at from last year is how many things that for as far back as we can remember were in abundance and then suddenly became very scarce. And at the same time, how many things that were at one point in time very, very scarce and then whether we liked it or not became very, very abundant. Yeah, so you're talking about like changes to things that we just sort of took for granted that we'd always sort of have and then all of a sudden there were restrictions imposed or toilet paper, the old toilet paper, yeah. Yeah, so I mean things like, I mean I wouldn't go as far as saying civil liberties, but yes, I mean in January of last year if you wanted to go for a walk anytime day or night you could, if you wanted to go to the supermarket and buy pasta sauce or toilet paper or soap or hand sanitizer, you could. And then by March you couldn't, couldn't do most of those things as and when you pleased. And the opposite's also true, where like things like, you know, time with your kids, which was once very, very limited, um, suddenly became a you're also now a full-time homeschooling teacher person, uh, and you cannot be more than five kilometers from your children at any time for the next six months. Is there anything you need to get off your chest, Dan? No, I love my children, <laughs> but it was just uh, I'm just reflecting on um, yeah how quickly things can can flip between the two. Right. And so this difference, this distinction between things being abundant or things being scarce makes a big difference to our behavior when it comes to how much we want or how much we're willing to pay for the items in question. And you know what that does, Dan? It brings us to a wonderful point where we can actually talk about a heuristic that is related to all of this stuff that you've been talking about. Bring it on. 2021's first heuristic. What do we got? It's called the scarcity bias or the scarcity heuristic. It is exactly as you've described, the tendency for us to place more value on things that we perceive to be more rare than things that we perceive to be in abundance. Uh, And how long will this scarcity heuristic be available for? (laughs) Well, it's in short supply, but we are only going to talk about it for about the next 15 minutes. Whoa, shit. All right. Well, we better get get straight onto it. So this is one of those ones where in a lot of respects, it feels very obvious, right? That if we can't get hold of something, we probably want it more. And I think that the evolutionary uh, handwriting for this is, is pretty obvious. So for most of our existence, um, a lot of things that we wanted were very hard to get, very dangerous to get, or, or actually very scarce. 
So, you know, it was hard to get food. It was hard to get shelter. So it kind of makes a lot of sense that we would be wired to want stuff that was in short supply. But what's weird is, I mean, today, most things that we need for our basic survival are not in short supply. Uh, and I, I think most of what we would consider scarce today, uh, I think our cave people selves would probably laugh at the notion that we'd be lusting after things simply because of the perception that they are not readily available. Right. And this is how, if I may, uh, you know, I'm sure our, our listeners are hanging out for the research. So, you know, this is how a lot of the of research has been has been designed basically to manipulate the perception of scarcity rather than the actuality of it and to see how people respond. So if I may have some research music, please, cops. That's the attitude. You can sell anything. Can sell, 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 sell me this fucking pen right here. You can sell anything. Sell that. Go ahead. Sell me that pen. Can I finish eating first? I need today. Essentially, there's a series of studies where the the essence of them all is the same. They'll have two things on offer, two options, I guess, of a, of a similar good, like two flavors of cookies, for example, um, or two ballpoint pens or two key rings in, you know, less exciting uh, variations of these sorts of studies, um, certainly less tasty ones. Um, and what they do is they first sort of check that, you know, that the two items are valued similarly at the start um, by participants. And then what they do is they introduce manipulations where they will change either the scarcity or the availability or abundance of one of these goods and they present the object back to participants with this added context like you have a choice of two cookies but this one like there's only two of them left and this other one yeah we've got you know there's 20 of them left and all of a sudden you see that people's preference for these goods um, how desirable they rate it and how valuable they rate it increases significantly once they know that it is in short supply. So the cookie study was done by Warchell, Lee and Adderwall in 1975 and then there were a bunch of studies in between but um, another common one that's cited is by Luigi Mitone and Lucia Savadori in 2009 um, who used the, the ballpoint pens or, or key rings um, and they found that the preference for the good increased by up to 23% in the scarce condition compared to the abundant condition. Spare a thought here. I mean, I, I do feel bad for the researchers that have to try and make key rings and ballpoint pens seem scarce. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've never really understood the rationale for better funding for research projects, but you know, if you're scrapping around trying to get people to lust after key rings, you're probably working too hard. So Sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do, Dan, for the purposes of scientific research. I know, but what, what pricked my ears up here? Did you say... 23% more, people willing to pay up to 23% more just because of the perception. Sorry, not that they're willing to pay up to 23% more, but their preference for the scarce option was 23% higher. Yeah, potato, potato. <laughs> Still, there was a 23% increase in something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, what, what is preference if, if not a substitute for willingness to pay? And when did we ever, or when did you ever let the details get in the way of a good story? Exactly. So 23% more just because of the perception of rarity. Uh, even in actual fact, there were probably lots of cookies still available or ballpoint pens or key rings. Yeah, and there's one thing that they that they also did that that's probably worth noting, that they the Italian researchers that I mentioned from 2009, they noted that competition increases the chances that scarcity bias is going to impact on your decision-making. So if you know that somebody else is going to get the option that you don't choose, so if you don't choose this key ring, and remember there's only two left, 
somebody else is going to get it, then you're much more likely to choose the scarce one. Like it's like, oh, well, I, I want it. Like I don't want them to have it because there's something special about this. So better I have the special thing than them. Uh, you just said two, one thing that was actually two things, right? You said, I want it. And also I don't want them to have it. Yeah. <laughs> Even if I don't want it that much, I want it enough to not want anybody <laughs> else to get it that I'm just going to go and buy it. Aren't we funny humans? <laughs> this idea of a perception of scarcity I think is more relevant than ever now because throughout our, our entire history and really even up into the 70s probably, you know, when it came down to business, the thing that was really hard was making stuff, you know, because you had to somehow coordinate supply chains from other sides of the world and get stuff into a place like Australia. And the idea was stuff was kind of hard to make but easy to sell. If you could land product here, oftentimes you, you could flog it. And I think what we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years is that it is now kind of easy to make most stuff. I mean, it's not easy to make an iPhone, but most things are easy to make. Most of us can go onto AliExpress and start importing bicycle parts or you know, USB-powered fans or bell-bottom jeans if that's what we decide we want to start making. But it's really hard to sell, right? Because everyone's trying to sell stuff through, through you know, social channels and through e-commerce and through retail stores. And so we've gone from a world where it was hard to make, easy to sell, into a world where it is easy to make, hard to sell. And really one of the best weapons I think we have at our disposal is being able to create a perception of scarcity when in reality there probably isn't one. Right. There's a big thing here about where the scarcity is coming from, right? And you're talking about situations where you can potentially manipulate, strategically manipulate the scarcity of an object or the perception of it. I don't love manipulate, but yes. <laughs> Use whatever word you want. <laughs> you can suggest or give it, yeah, Infer. do something to to alter the perception of scarcity for people. And I guess, you know, the reasons underlying people's tendencies to do this are really strong and really, uh, really deeply sort of, you know, they're inherent. And that's why I think it's one of those things where even though, it, you know, like you say, it might be so easy to produce things, why it might actually work in, favor of brands to sometimes produce limited amounts and i think that they know that there are two a couple of key factors two in particular that we'll talk about that contribute to the scarcity bias occurring and the tendency for people to um to fall victim to it so we'll just note a couple of underlying sort of theories that contribute to it so first there's commodity theory which simply states that the perceived unavailability of a resource that makes it more valuable so knowing that something is hard to get makes you want it more. There's also uniqueness theory, which is the idea that we have a basic need to set ourselves apart from other people, to differentiate ourselves. And one way that we can make ourselves different or set ourselves apart is by acquiring a rare good that not everybody has access to. There's also, we've talked about in previous episodes, a couple of heuristics that, that sort of play a part here. So one is social proof, and you'll remember that social proof is our tendency to sort of follow the crowd and do what everybody else is doing. And we'll tend to assume that if something is scarce, it's because, well, lots of other people have already bought it, and so if everybody else has it, then I want it as well. I want to be just like everybody else, which is sort of a little bit against the uniqueness theory, but in, in a situation where there's actually there was once a lot of something and now there's maybe less of it, we're more likely to go, well, everybody else has picked that up. I better get one as well, right? I don't want to miss out. Restaurants are always the talking point for this stuff. So it's like, you know, there are a lot of people that want to go to this restaurant. There are a limited number of tables in there. So they're kind of scarce, but 
Um, and while there's lots of other places I could eat, I'm very happy to stand out the front of this restaurant and wait for a table with all of these other people because it, it seems like a rare opportunity to get to eat there. Right. And the other thing that comes into play here, a sort of a, a family favourite that we come back to is loss aversion. The idea that we don't want to feel like we've lost an opportunity to own something, right, because that hurts us. And so the idea with that is like if we're presented with two options, one that there's plenty of, it's in abundance, and one that's scarce, we're tempted to purchase the scarce item because if we buy the abundant one but make the wrong choice, we're not going to be able to come back and get the scarce one. We're going to lose our opportunity to purchase the scarce one. But on the other hand, if we take the scarce one and then later we change our mind about it, we haven't really lost anything. We can always come back and get the one that's in abundance. There's plenty of them. You can flip flick the scarce one on eBay. You probably come out on top. <laughs> yeah, so there's there's huge advantages or perceived advantages to, to going with the scarce one plus the fact that if you have it, nobody else does or somebody else won't. And at the end of the day, that's how we are as humans, aren't we? We're all horrible creatures who just want what's best for us and don't care about anybody else. Well, you know, that is largely true. But, there, you know, there, there is something that seems to be innate within a lot of us that, you know, loves the idea of you know, if you have something that other people can't get, you must have access to power or money or contacts or information that other people don't have. Otherwise, you can't get that thing. So, you know, in our natural desire to create pecking orders in our societies, um, this really feeds into that. Yeah, and I think we can also go back to, you know, we can throw in a little um, a little shout out to the framing effect as well because there was something in the framing effect or if you remember we talked about how it, it's not really about the object itself, it's just all about how it's presented and that comes a lot into play here that there's um, the, the perceived value of the good has very little to do with the good itself but everything to do with the context and whether it's scarce or abundant. Exactly. I mean, th- there was... Um, a big trend in sneakers a few years ago started by a company called Balenciaga and they released this shoe called the, the Triple S and it was called a, a Triple S because it, it like had three midsoles stacked on top of each other. And when you talk about the framing effect, in one respect, this is a horrifically ugly shoe. On the other hand, it is a horrifically ugly shoe that is $1,200 and there are very, very few pairs available. How many pairs of them do you own? Yeah, well, I don't own any, thank God. But uh, you know, they they have they went absolutely bonkers, and nobody could tell you why. I mean, they literally are diabolical looking shoe. But they were rare, they were expensive, and they just struck a chord with people. Mm-hmm. So we can sort of capture the ways that you can, I'll say, manipulate. I know you don't like that word, but there are a couple of ways that we can actually manipulate the scarcity of a good, right? So one of them has to do with the quantity. So we can limit the quantity. I think you were talking about this before, like you can limit the quantity that are actually produced, right? Yep. Sneakers is one really obvious place where, where we see this, where um, especially particular shoes, like um, there's a particular Jordan, the Air Jordan 11. There was, uh, they were, we could do a whole separate podcast on the Jordan 11. Anyway, great shoe, very iconic. Originally from 1995, it was Jordan's comeback shoe after his first retirement. And people love this shoe. And it gets re-released every year, often multiple times a year in different colorways with different levels of perceived or actual scarcity. And like there was a particular colorway that came out in 2014. It was the, the legend blue. It wasn't even that rare. I think there were about half a million pairs that got dropped on release date. And they were only um, 200 bucks, so nothing so crazy. But the perception that there weren't many pairs of these meant that from three days out, there were people camping out to get these shoes 
the, the day before the stores actually opened, uh, at one store, they had 50 police officers dispatched to the site to steady the crowds. There's crowds of people trying to buy $200 sneakers. And the day that the shop actually opened, there were riots, things got set on fire, the doors got broken down. And really just because of the perception that there was a limited quantity of this number of shoes. And we've seen this play out hundreds and hundreds of times since. Yeah. And so that's about limiting the quantity of a, of a product. And the flip side of that is that if something is very limited to the point where it's actually rare, then it becomes more valuable. And you just have to think of like um, collector, you know, collector baseball cards or basketball cards. And there are certain ones that they're not in high production. And so people will pay a lot more for them simply because they're very hard to get. Right. Absolutely. Another factor that contributes to scarcity has to do with time, right? So whenever there's a perception that time is limited, um, and we see this, I'm sure you can talk to this, but I'm thinking of, you know, um, limited time only or this deal is only available for the next 24 hours or the offer yeah. expires in a few yep. days. Look at me going all marketing on us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a, a, a sales technique as old as selling. And you see this from signs stuck up in, you know, Two dollar shops, basically saying clearance sale today only. To um, you know, this has almost become a hallmark of things like telco, the telco industry, where there really is no natural limit on how many deals they can make, how long they can offer plans for. So what they do is they add an official constraint that this particular deal or this particular bundle is only available, you know, until the end of February. When of course they could keep doing it in March and April and May, but they put that artificial constraint in there so people feel that pressure of having to act now so that they don't miss out. Yeah. And so the the final thing I guess that we can think about in terms of what we can what we can do to make something more scarce is that we can restrict or censor access to something. So that it's only available to certain people if they're willing to, I guess, pay for it. Yeah, exactly. So I guess the the digital economy is a really interesting place where we see this, where there is you know, a huge abundance of things like news. And once a newspaper puts an article on the website, it can be accessed by billions of people really for no incremental cost. But to try and get people to assign value to news online, the publishers have had to find some interesting ways to create scarcity. And so this idea of limiting access where a billion people can look at this article, but you, Dr. Mel, or you, Producer Cops, can only look at five articles on this website this month and then you need to start paying for it gets us to start thinking that this is a rarer opportunity than it really is and increases the value we might perceive of the content of that publisher and therefore increases the likelihood that we might actually pay to become a, a subscriber. Great. So I think we've covered a lot of, of scarcity bias. I feel like we've actually gone through a whole bunch of stuff. Um, is it time to, to do a little recap, a little summary? Yeah, I, I feel like our episode on scarcity bias has been abundant <laughs> with information. And I feel like you, that, that was nice because normally I have to do all the brand stuff by myself, but I feel like you really led me in there. I might just ask you, for the, for the humans out there just trying to get by in the world, trying to not fall victim of the scarcity bias, have you got any suggestions? Yeah, well, I think there's a suggestion, not by me, but there's a suggestion that actually when we perceive there to be a limited choice of something, that itself engenders a state of arousal in us. And we've talked before about how when we experience a sort of a change to our physiological or emotional state, we're motivated to reduce it, right? We actually, even though it's like, it could be like an exciting thing, like there's a bit of a thrill of, oh my God, there's something, I don't know if I'm going to get it or not, but we can resolve it by purchasing the product, right? And I guess my question or the, the question I want people, I guess, to put to themselves is, do you actually want this item or 
are you just sort of falling victim to this thrill, right, of like I don't want to not have it because I think there's a big difference between wanting something and then wanting to make sure that you don't not have it. And I think it's important that if, if you want something, hey, go for it. If you want something and you can afford it and it's going to help you, then it's a good decision, right? But if you're wanting just not to miss out on something, then that's, I guess, a point where you might be more likely to, to make a decision that we would call a bad decision. Nice. And look, I think anybody that's been in a nightclub past 2.30 in the morning is familiar with that equation of choices going down, arousal levels going up. And asking yourself whether you really want something or if you just don't want to miss out is, is a really worthwhile thing to challenge yourself with. And that's probably a good time to end this episode. What do you think? <laughs> it's good for me. I don't know what you're talking about. I was never in that position. I always had an abundance of choices. At least I like to fool myself into thinking I did. <laughs> oh, maybe we won't end. Do you, want to, do you want to talk a bit more about that, Dr. Mel? <laughs> no, no, no. I think, uh, I think we're good. <laughs> All right. Let's put a ribbon on it. <laughs> Scarcity bias. What's that, uh, what's that textbook definition? The scarcity bias is our tendency to value something more simply because there's less of it or we perceive that there's less of it available. Exactly. And uh, it doesn't just work for cookies and key rings. It pretty much works for everything, right? <laughs> so I think the opportunity for brands here is to do this, number one, through quantity. So limited runs or capped availability of particular ranges to do it through time. So making offers available, but having definitive cutoff points after which point they're no longer available. And thinking about access, so giving people the ability to you know, consume or interact with some part of what you offer, but cutting it off there unless they become paying subscribers. And for peeps? And for peeps, I guess just recognize whether you actually want the product or whether you just whether it's just FOMO and you're just falling victim to wanting to make sure that you don't miss out. Yeah, it might be some other ways to get your endorphins, like just go for a run. Go for a run. Yeah, sure. It's easy as that. Go for a coffee with a friend. You can probably have the, probably be just as exciting as actually buying the product. And you don't have to probably wait in line for the good outside a Nike store for three days. Go for a run, have a coffee. And if you still want it, then you can buy it if it's still available. Good advice. Awesome. All right. Uh, cool. That was fun. Uh, you can find us on the internet. I'm uh, at Dan Monheit. Um, I'm, I'm at Dr. Mel W. And we'll be back with another episode, maybe. Uh, they're, they're pretty limited. Um, oh, this could be the last one. Could be. Who knows? <laughs> Tell a friend. Get it quick. Catch you next time. See ya.